Okay, I want to welcome everybody to People's School for Marxist Learning Studies. Today is the 15th of December. We're going to have a class on The Social Basis of the Woman Question by Alexandra Kalantai. All right, so we had to set the Women's Commission. We thought it was so good. We wanted to do it at the People's School. This was published in 1909. I know that was over a hundred years ago, but I assure you, comrades, everything in here is as relevant today as it was 111 years ago. Okay, and uh, we will get started now. Leaving it to the bourgeois scholars to absorb themselves in discussion of the question of the superiority of one sex over the other or in the weighing of brains and the comparing of the psychological structure of men and women, the followers of historical materialism fully accept the natural specificities of each sex and demand only that each person, whether man or woman, has a real opportunity for the fullest and freest self-determination. And the widest scope for the development and application of all natural inclinations. The followers of historical materialism reject the existence of a special woman question separate from the general social questions of our day. Specific economic factors were behind the subordination of women. Natural qualities have been a secondary factor in this process. Only the complete disappearance of these factors only the evolution of those forces, which at some point in the past gave rise to the subjection of women, is able in a fundamental way to influence and change their social position. In other words, women can become truly free and equal only in a world organized along new social and productive lines. This, however, does not mean that the partial improvement of women's life within the framework of the modern system is impossible. The radical solution of the workers' question is possible only with the complete reconstruction of modern productive relations. But must this prevent us from working for reforms which would serve to satisfy the most urgent interests of the proletariat? On the contrary, each new gain of the working class represents a step leading mankind toward the kingdom of freedom and social equality. Each right that woman wins brings her nearer the defined goal of full emancipation. Social democracy was the first to include in its program the demand for the equalization of the rights of women with those of men. In speeches and in print, the party demands always and everywhere the withdrawal of limitations affecting women. It is the party's influence alone that has forced other parties and governments to carry out reforms in favor of women. And in Russia, this party is not only the defender of women in terms of its theoretical position, but always and everywhere adheres to the principle of women's equality. What in this case hinders our equal writers from accepting the support of this strong and experienced party? The fact is that, however radical, 
the equal writers may be, they are still loyal to their own bourgeois class. Political freedom is at the moment an essential prerequisite for the growth and power of the Russian bourgeoisie. Without it, all the economic welfare of the latter will turn out to have been built upon sand. The demand for political equality for women is a necessity that stems from life itself. The slogan of access to the professions has ceased to suffice. Only direct participation in the government of the country promises to assist in raising women's economic situation. Hence the passionate desire of women of the middle bourgeoisie to gain the franchise, and hence the hostility to the modern bureaucratic system. However, in the demands for political equality, our feminists, like their foreign sisters, the feminists seek equality in the framework of the existing class society. In no way do they attack the basis of this society. They fight for prerogatives for themselves without challenging the existing prerogatives and privileges. We do not accuse the representatives of the bourgeois women's movement of failure to understand the matter. Their view of things flows inevitably from their class position. And with that, I will stop for questions. So I was curious what efforts the USSR took to grow the international women's movement. Well, I can answer that easy. In 1945, the war ended. At the behest of the Soviet Union, they pushed for creating four international organizations. One for the trade union movement. It was called the WFTU, World Federation of Trade Unions, which still exists today, which Labor United in Class Struggle Lux, which is affiliated with that party, they have connections with the WFTU. They put out a publication called Labor Today. So that was one of the groups the Soviets called for internationally. The second one was the World Federation of Democratic Youth, what we call WFTI, and they still exist today, and our League of Young Communists is involved with WFTI. The third one was the World Peace Council, WPC. And in this country, the U.S. Peace Council is an affiliate of that. And the difference between that peace organization and all the other ones before is that one fights specifically imperialism and explains that imperialism comes from capitalism. So the WFTU and the trade union movement is anti-capitalist, not necessarily pro-communist, but anti-capitalist. And the World Peace Council is also anti-capitalist. The last group is called the Women's International Democratic Federation. That was started in 1945 by the socialist countries. And in our country, RE is involved with the Women's International Democratic Federation. It all started in 1945. The United States tried to destroy all of them in 1947, two years later, when the Truman administration started the Cold War. The famous, an iron country has gone over Europe, that Winston Churchill uses, was an anti-communist attempt to split the anti-capitalist movement. So I hope I explained something. Yep, thank you. It was mentioned 
that Lenin criticized the feminist movement of his time. So I was just wondering what those criticisms were and if they would apply to modern feminism at all. I know what my knowledge of it has been. Communists never used the word feminism in my lifetime. I think they were used in the early years in some sections of the communist movement. I could be wrong about that. But I know in the 68 onward, we never used the word feminist in this country. We set up our own women's organizations, and they dealt basically with the class. So we dealt with supporting working women and women from racial ethnic backgrounds who were affected economically and racially in a negative way. We understood feminism in the party as a bourgeois thing. Why do I say that? Because everything that happened, remember 1970 was the year of outbreak in two communities, the women's movement and the LGBT movement with the uprising at Stonewall in New York City. But those two movements were basically not the same. The women's movement in 1970 was led by Betty Friedan, who wrote a book you should all look at, The Feminine Mystique. The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan became a big seller in New York Times in 1970. And their whole analysis was that men oppressed women and that the hierarchical structure of society and the family was to benefit the male. That was the analysis of the feminist movement of the 70s, of the 80s. A group of women in mid-1970 in the trade union movement formed a group, God, I forgot what they were called now, but they were trade union women on the women's question. There was another national organization that was born in those years called National Organization of Women, now, N-O-W, for short, and that also was basically bourgeois-led. So the question you're raising, this is the first time I've come across a negative reference to it is clearing away more prejudice, I'll read what he wrote, than could volumes of feminist literature. So what he's saying here is obvious, that all the literature that's come out from the feminist movement was not as effective as what women in the party in the early years of the revolution did. I don't know if I answered your question, comrade, but that's my understanding of it. Colin Tai had a little different view, but basically the same, that the women workers needed to have advancement in society and that the women's suffragette movement, remember in this country, the suffragette movement was in the 1910 period and that was also led by petty bourgeois elements of the women's movement. I don't know if I answered you, comment. More or less, thank you. Only question is, at this point, when this was written, she was still part of the Social Democrat Party at the time, right? This is 1909. It was still the Social Democratic Party, but at this point in time, if I'm remembering correctly, the party had split into the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, and I believe that there was one or two other factions that existed within the party at that time, comrade. Okay, thank you.
The most amazing thing to me was the fact that Alexandra was talking about the glass ceiling in 1909, and I had never really realized that there is a difference between the bourgeois feminist movement, and it's still very active. They're still trying to get their gender recognized as equal with men and all the corporations and so on and so forth, but it actually has nothing to do with the working class. So it's just astounding, like 111 years later, they talked about the glass ceiling then. I just wanted to say that's correct, and I wanted to bring up just something historical that happened recently, was Nancy Pelosi assigned an assistant to her. It was the first time there's ever been somebody in that role who was a woman, and the bourgeoisie were acting like this was some big deal. But we have to remember that the woman who was assigned to this role, she's a bourgeois politician, She's rich, not as rich as Nancy Pelosi, but still, she represents the interests of the bourgeoisie. But the bourgeoisie are going to act like this is some big deal, like this is something that's actually going to you know, matter. But at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, how does this person being in this position help working women? Thank you. Good point. I was just wondering what laws the Soviet Union had in place during this time or maybe shortly after that preserve equal rights for women because she's talking a lot about stuff in Russia. So I'm just wondering, like, for historical context, what was going on in the Soviet Union around that time that helped preserve those rights? This is written in 1909. So this is before the Soviet Union. This is four years after the February Revolution. The February Revolution did manage to get some minor reforms in Russia, but it did not get any substantial reforms for women, actually. There are no reforms for women that helped them at all in the February Revolution. Women made absolutely no gains in 1905. Thank you. So in the reading, I heard the need for direct participation. Is the idea behind that to have 50% representation of women on all the councils. What do they mean by direct participation? Thank you. What they mean by direct participation is, at this point, they mean at least the right to be in politics, to have equal rights, equal representation to men, because at this point in time, women were not allowed to enter politics. Women were not allowed to go to university in Russia, for example, Alexandra Kalantai herself had to travel to France to get her degree. She couldn't study in Russia. So that's what they're talking about. 50% is an ideal, but that's not necessarily what she's talking about. I'm sure that everybody would have loved that. But at this point in time, they're talking about women at least having these basic rights. Does that answer your question, comrade? Yes, thank you. I believe the uh, Soviet Union, at least for a time, they actually did have a requirement for a lot of the economic planning committees that they be at least, I think it was 30% women, if that's relevant. I do believe I remember reading something similar to that, Comrade. I, you may be correct. I'm not I sure about that was something they actually achieved after the October Revolution. I do remember that there was quite a bit of women representation after the revolution, and that lasted up until around the time that Stalin died. And I do know that after that, Khrushchev actually had a lot of women who were in politics. 
were either forced to retire early or they were sent out of the party or whatever. It wasn't for a very long time after that that women were able to get back into being involved in politics. But I do know that under Stalin that there was quite a number of women who were able to achieve great strides in politics. For example, and I know I'm going over a little, there is a woman named Nadia Grakova who was the head of state in Belarus at the age of 28 and she held that position until 1945. She was the first head of state of Belarus once created the Supreme Soviet in Belarus, just as an example. That's an amazing feat for any woman, really. So we're going to the first chapter now, which is the struggle for economic independence. And it starts, first of all, we must ask ourselves whether a single united women's movement is possible in a society based on class contradictions. The fact that women who take part in the liberation movement do not represent one homogenous mass is clear to every unbiased observer. The women's world is divided, just as the world of men, into two camps. The interests and aspirations of one group of women bring it close to the bourgeois class, while the other group has close connections with the proletariat, and it claims for liberation encompasses a full solution to the woman question. Thus, although both camps follow the general slogan of the liberation of women, their aims and interests are different. Each of the groups unconsciously takes its starting point from the interests of its own class, which gives a specific class coloring to the targets and tasks it sets itself. However, apparently radical, the demands of the feminists, one must not lose sight of the fact that the feminists cannot, on account of their class position, fight for the fundamental transformation of the contemporary economic and social structure of society without which the liberation of women cannot be complete. And I just want to make clear here what Kamad Kalantai is talking about specifically is bourgeois feminism. In 1909, the only feminists that existed, the people who were calling them feminists, were bourgeois feminists. It wasn't until shortly after this was written that proletarian feminism was something that existed. And at that point in time, it was called Marxist feminism. If in certain circumstances, the short-term tasks of women of all classes coincide, the final aims of the two camps, which in the long term determine the direction of the movement and the tactics to be used, differ sharply. While for the feminists, the achievement of equal rights with men in the framework of the contemporary capitalist world represents sufficiently concrete end in itself. Equal rights at the present time are, for the proletarian woman, only a means of advancing the struggle against the economic slavery of the working class. The feminists see men as the main enemy, for men have unjustly seized all rights and privileges for themselves leaving women only chains and duties. For them, a victory is won when a prerogative previously enjoyed exclusively by the male sex is conceded to the fair sex. Proletarian women have a different attitude. 
They do not see men as the enemy and the oppressor. On the contrary, they think of men as their comrades, who share with them the drudgery of the daily round and fight with them for a better future. The woman and her male comrade are enslaved by the same social conditions. The same hated chains of capitalism oppress their will and deprive them of the joys and charms of life. It is true that several specific aspects of the contemporary system lie with double weight upon women, as it is also true that the conditions of hired labor sometimes turn working women into competitors and rivals to men. But in these unfavorable situations, the working class knows who is guilty. The woman worker, no less than her brother in misfortune, hates that insatiable monster with its gilded maw which, concerned only to drain all the sap from its victims and to grow at the expense of millions of human lives, throws itself with equal greed at man, woman, and child. Thousands of threads bring the working man close. The aspirations of the bourgeois woman, on the other hand, seem strange and incomprehensible. They are not warming to the proletarian heart. They do not promise the proletarian woman the bright future towards which the eyes of all exploited humanity are turned. The proletarian woman's final aim does not, of course, prevent them from desiring to improve their status even within the framework of the current bourgeois system, but the realization of these desires is constantly hindered by obstacles that derive from the very nature of capitalism. A woman can possess equal rights and truly be free only in a world of socialized labor of harmony and justice. The feminists are unwilling and incapable of understanding this. It seems to them that when equality is formally accepted by the letter of the law, they will be able to win a comfortable place for themselves in the old world of oppression, enslavement, and bondage, of tears and hardship. And this is true up to a certain point. For the majority of women of the proletariat, equal rights with men would mean only an equal share in inequality. But for the quote-unquote chosen few, for the bourgeois women, it would indeed open doors to new and unprecedented rights and privileges that until now have been enjoyed by men of the bourgeois class alone. But each new concession won by the bourgeois woman would give her yet another weapon for the exploitation of her younger sister and would go on increasing the division between the women of the two opposite social camps. Their interests would be more sharply in conflict. Their aspirations more obviously in contradiction. Where then is that general woman question? Where is that unity of tasks and aspirations which the feminists have so much to say? A sober glance at reality shows that such unity does not and cannot exist. In vain, the feminists try to assure themselves that the woman question has nothing to do with that of the political party, and that, quote, its solution is possible only with the participation of all parties and all women, unquote. As one of the radical German feminists has said, the logic of facts forces us to reject this comforting delusion of the feminists. And with that, I'll stop for questions. I just want to say this is a remarkably prescient and groundbreaking text. These are conversations that are only now just being had in earnest and mostly only within the sequestered academic circles of contemporary feminism. 
But I think it's just another example of how quote-unquote progressive movement misappropriate and misrepresent conversations that have been being had in communist movements for well over a century now. First of all, what I want to say is really interesting. You're talking about the woman's question, and I keep in my mind going over Zionism, going over black nationalism. And I hear the same thing, except instead of having the word women, they put the word race, black nationalism, or they put the word Zionism among the Jewish people. It's an old story, and it's very important, as Cameron said, because it's being brought to the fore. Everybody's making a stink about if Hillary was the president, 2016, the first woman. That's all the bourgeoisie think about. Let it look like we're improving the lot. Different people who were not in office before. Doesn't make a bit of difference. Everybody in this school knows that. It's class. Everything is class and nothing but class. So if you have a black manager, I just want people to know this, in a corporation, Workers' World, you heard of Workers' World Party, their position is that we as communists are supposed to support that black man in the corporate world. If a woman is in the corporate world, they want the same thing, Workers' World. And the discussion is that if someone in LGBT wants to get into the Air Force so they can bomb third world peoples, we should struggle as communists for those people to get in. I find it that problematic, that kind of analysis. We support the worker. If we don't support the worker, who's going to support the worker? The bourgeoisie? No. So our job as communists is always to push for the worker and spend our time in supporting the worker, whether they are in the woman's question, in the race question, in the gender question, whatever it is. I just want to end with the term that Zionism tries to sell us that just like the male is the enemy, the enemy is the goy, the non-Jew. That's what the Zionist tries to sell us, when we all know that the enemy is capitalism. Thank you. Yes, the issue that you're talking about is contemporarily called identity politics, more specifically liberal identity politics. And what I brought up earlier about the woman who was made the assistant to Nancy Pelosi, and something I brought up, this goes along with your statement, Something that I said is they say, oh, we're breaking the glass ceiling, but they never consider where those shards of glass are falling and whom they may be falling upon. And it's always the working women. Whenever the bourgeois woman advances, we, the proletarian women, suffer in the process. And that's what we have to remember. I think the Marxist-Leninist perception of the woman's issue relates to production relations as a whole. As long as the bourgeoisie is alive, as long as corporate capitalism is alive, their divisive tactics of divide and rule, even in the mode of production, is going to continue. So women may feel that the constitution will defend them or Joe Biden will defend them because he has so many women from Hispanics and uh, Afro-Americans in his team. That is not emancipation. That is just goofing off. 
He's trying to give you the impression that you are equal because you are in the cabinet. But equality from a Marxist-Lenin's point of view is based on production relations. As long as private ownership of the means of production is destroyed and women and men as laborers, as workers, compete equally, showing their talents, women cannot be emancipated for good. So we have to see it from an ideological standpoint of Marxism-Leninism. So the ideology must be the point of departure for both men and women who are exploited under case monopoly capitalism. We have to break ranks from that. Kalantai, which you read about, talks about bourgeois feminism, which in my estimation is one of the most important things we're reading about tonight. But I've also heard the terms white feminism and imperialist feminism thrown around. So my question is, are those distinct sort of philosophies and trends, or are they just sort of manifestations of bourgeois feminism that have been covered up and maybe have face painted on, but the face is still the same underneath kind of way? That was my question. Really, white feminism, imperialist feminism, it's really all the same thing. White feminism, imperialist feminism, bourgeois feminism. Bourgeois feminism is an umbrella term for all of these things. But white feminism, there's white working women. So white feminism, what it means and what it is are two totally different things. But when we use that term, it is, of course, important to remember there are white working women. Imperialist feminism 100% is just a different way of saying bourgeois feminism. 100% confident that the term imperialist feminism is a term that comes out of the new left. That sounds to me like a new left term, probably a Maoist term. White feminism, more than likely the same thing. But I understand the anger that comes from non-white people where they would come up with a term like white feminism. So I'm not very critical of that. I definitely understand it. But yes, those are both literally the same thing, just different ways of saying the same thing. We're going to be starting at the next paragraph, the conditions and forms of production. The conditions and forms of production have subjugated women throughout human history and have gradually relegated them to the position of oppression and dependence in which most of them existed until now. The colossal upheaval of the entire social and economic structure was required before women could begin to retrieve the significance and independence they had lost. Problems which at one time seemed too difficult for the most talented thinkers have now been solved by the inanimate but all-powerful conditions of production. The same fortresses which for thousands of years enslaved women now at a further stage of development, are leading them along the path to freedom and independence. The woman question assumed importance for women of the bourgeois class approximately in the middle of the 19th century, a considerable time after the proletarian women had arrived in the labor arena. Under the impact of the monstrous successes of capitalism, the middle classes of the population were hit by waves of need. The economic changes had rendered the financial situation of the 
petty and middle bourgeoisie unstable, and the bourgeois women were faced with a dilemma of menacing proportions. Either accept poverty or achieve the right to work. Wives and daughters of these social groups began to knock at the doors of the universities, the art salons, the editorial houses, the offices, writing the professions that were open to them. The desire of bourgeois women to gain access to science and the higher benefits of culture was not the result of a sudden maturing need, but stemmed from the same question of, quote-unquote, daily bread. The women of the bourgeoisie met with stiff resistance from men. A stubborn battle was waged between the professional men attached to their cozy little jobs and the women who were novices in the matter of earning their daily bread. This struggle gave rise to, quote-unquote, feminism. The attempt of bourgeois women to stand together and pit their common strength against the enemy, against men. As they entered the labor arena, these women proudly referred to themselves as the, quote-unquote, vanguard of the women's movement. They forgot that in this matter of winning economic independence, they were, as in other fields, traveling in the footsteps of their younger sisters, reaping the fruits of their efforts of their blistered hands. Is it then really possible to talk of the feminists pioneering the road of women's work when in every country hundreds of thousands of proletarian women have flooded the factories and workshops, taking over one branch of industry after another before the bourgeois women's movement was ever born? Only thanks to the fact that labor of women workers had received recognition on the world market were the bourgeois women able to occupy the independent position in society in which the feminists take so much pride. We find it difficult to point to even one fact in history of the struggle of the proletarian women to prove their material conditions to which the general feminist movement has contributed significantly. Whatever the proletarian women have achieved in the sphere of raising their own living standards, as a result of the efforts of the working class in general and of themselves in particular, the history of the struggle of the working women for better conditions of labor and for a more decent life is the history of the struggle of the proletariat for its liberation. What, if not the fear of a dangerous explosion of proletarian dissatisfaction, forces the factory owners to raise the price of labor, reduce hours, and introduce better working conditions? What, if not the fear of quote-unquote labor unrest, persuades the government to establish legislation to limit the exploitation of labor by capital? There is not one party in the world that has taken up the defense of women as social democracy has done. The working woman is first and foremost a member of the working class. And the more satisfactory the position and the general welfare of each member of the proletarian family, the greater the benefit in the long run to the whole of the working class. In the face of the growing social difficulties, the sincere fighter for the cause must stop in sad bewilderment. We cannot but see how little the general women's movement has done for proletarian women, 
how incapable it is of improving the working and living conditions of the working class. The future of humanity must seem gray, drab, and uncertain to those women who are fighting for equality, but who have not adopted the proletarian world outlook or developed a firm faith in the coming of a more perfect social system. While the contemporary capitalist world remains unchanged, liberation must seem to them incomplete and impartial. What despair must grip the more thoughtful and sensitive of these women? Only the working class is capable of maintaining morale in the modern world with its distorted social relations. With firm and measured step, it advances steadily towards its aim. It draws the working women to its ranks. The proletarian woman bravely starts out on the thorny path of labor. Her legs sag, her body is torn. There are dangerous precipices along the way, and cruel beasts of prey are close at hand. But only by taking this path is woman able to achieve that distant but alluring aim, her true liberation in a new world of labor during this difficult march to the bright future the proletarian woman, until recently a humiliated, downtrodden slave with no rights, learns to discard the slave mentality that has clung to her. Step by step, she transforms herself into an independent worker, an independent personality, free in love. It is she, fighting in the ranks of the proletariat, who wins for women the right to work. It is she, the quote-unquote younger sister, who prepares the ground for the quote-unquote, free and, quote-unquote, equal woman of the future. For what reason, then, should the woman worker seek a union with the bourgeois feminist, who in actual fact would stand to gain in the event of such an alliance? Certainly not the woman worker. She is her own savior. Her future is in her own hands. The working woman guards her class interests and is not decided by great speeches about the, quote-unquote, world all women share, the working woman must not and does not forget that while the aim of bourgeois women is to secure their own welfare in the framework of a society antagonistic to us, our aim is to build in the place of the old outdated world a bright temple of universal labor, camaraderie, solidarity, and joyful freedom. With that, we will open for round robin. Thank you. I think this class has given me a little bit of vocabulary to understand something that's been bothering me a lot that I haven't really been able to, I don't know, put it into words. I have two young daughters, and I think a lot about the ways that they're going to be shaped by the media culture that they consume. And one of the biggest complaints that I have is, like, there's so many books and advertisements constantly surrounding them about, someone mentioned girl boss, that trope, and that it's so true. And then also someone was talking about how the term feminism was not even used by Lenin. And I'm wondering, it was a different time, but something that I'm kind of thinking about is it seems to me like the idea of feminism has really been co-opted by advertising agencies and mass media in general. I mean, not only is it ignorant of the class struggle in general, but sometimes it's ignorant of real I feel that. Just wanted to say. differences. There's a stupid commercial for soap and it's, how do you run like a girl or something like that? And that's supposed to be a feminist message or like Beyonce's song of girls run the world. And, you know, and she employs women in exploited situations to make her 
clothing line. I mean, it's like infuriating to me. Anyway, thank you, everyone. I was amazed by how progressive the text is, uh, especially from something from 1909, like prior to the Soviet Union. At the end of the reading, they were talking about essentially what is concessions to working class people in order to stave off revolutionary ferment, I guess. And that's something I've never heard about, except for in cases where you were talking about the Soviet Union already existing. So it's always shocking to see how ahead of the times leftists are in general. That's it. Thank you. What advice do you have for men to help explain to other women who are not communists or leftists, so to speak, on trying to make them aware of this bourgeois feminism and how it's really the wrong path for them to pursue and to celebrate? Thank you. Try to get them to see that the people who are in these bourgeois roles you know, whoever they might look up to as a bourgeois leader or role model, whatever, whatever the issue is, try and get them to see how are they helping them? How are they actually helping women? What do they do that actually helps working women in the long run? And try and get them to see what do they do that hurts working women? That's the other very important thing you can do. And try and show them what other bourgeois women do that hurts working women. That's one thing that I would suggest. And maybe Comrade has something more in-depth that he can add to this. I'm going to say something that I've only learned from younger people who came into the communist movement and are trying to explain how it's important for us to deal with the double oppression of either African-Americans, they're oppressed as workers, they're oppressed as African-Americans, and some of them who are women are oppressed as women. So I learned from these young people something which I have now rejected. And they use this word, which in my time, I'm 73, we never use this word. It's called class reductionism. Young people must know what I'm talking about. And we in the older generation who fought in the labor movement and people who came before me in the 30s, we built a working class movement without using that word. And we basically don't understand that word. Okay, according to Marx, everything is class. He makes it very clear. So this attempt by new younger people to say everything is not class, there's other things involved. This idea of reductionism, when you come down and say everything is class, is not correct. And I see now that that is not a correct analysis as a communist. Everything is class. Everything is class. And if we don't say that as communists, why should we expect liberal sections of the bourgeoisie to say it? Then we might as well just take the whole class struggle, as Comrade Marx said, and put it on the shelf if we think it's reductionism. So I think that everything is class, from soup to nuts. That includes the women question. That includes the race question. That includes the Jewish question. That includes the LGBT question. Everything is class. 
That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Could I bounce off that a little bit? Yeah, go ahead. The way I see it with class reductionism is that, like, the core of the foundation, the core of everything is class. Like you're saying, it is class, but then you have a second level on top of that, which is the intersectionality of class. Everyone we look at is affected by class, but they're also affected by race and sexuality and everything else. And that's something we do really have to look at. And that's why we're looking at it. That's why we're saying this is we see in this text, she's talking about how they might have the same sex, the same gender or anything, these women, but the bourgeois women are dominated by their class consciousness and are going to be reacting to their class. But the proletariat women are also dominated by their gender and, and, and what's affecting them differently than proletarian men. So it's definitely a two-level thing that we have to look at with that. Thank That's you. All. Good answer. One of my favorite quotes from the piece, she says, a man who buys the favors of a woman does not see her as a comrade or as a person with equal rights. He sees the woman as dependent upon himself and as an unequal creature of a lower order who is of less worth to the worker state. That's all. I just wanted to share that. And thank you. Thank you, comrade. I absolutely love that quote. I think most of my topics were addressed earlier by other speakers, but I really was also going to get into the whole idea of what they call class reductionism and intersectionality as well, because those are very in vogue terms in today's leftist discourse. And I think there's pros and cons to overemphasizing it and underemphasizing it as well. I think it was correct when he says that everything is class ultimately. And I think that he's also correct in saying that we shouldn't spend too much time dealing in identity politics because it becomes a slippery slope that leads into a more liberal mindset and discourse. However, as the person who came after him said, this is not an excuse to write off the very particular problems of different sects of workers. You can imagine that even after a proletarian revolution, per se, not all problems related to, say, sexism should be ignored simply because the workers have taken over. And same thing with race. I could see these things when they go under the radar and dismissed as class reductionism becoming problematic, as they say. But I just want to bring up the kind of indeterminacy of where that whole question lies. And really, it's all been kind of covered before. Thank you. So, Kalante talks about this a bit in one of her more controversial texts, Prostitution and Ways of Fighting It. One of the things that she does talk about in that text is she mentions that was actually an issue that she felt needed to be addressed was that after the revolution, they did do that. Exactly what she said was they said, okay, we won the revolution, sexism is over. And Kalante said, no, it's not. And it wasn't. And after she wrote this text, the party actually realized that. And they started fighting a little harder for these things. So you're right. But I also want to say, when we talk about fighting against identity politics and all that, which it sounds like you definitely understood, comrade, what we're saying is identity politics gets to a point where it stops 
analyzing class. And that's the problem with identity politics. Identity politics is something that has never been meant for having a class analysis. That's the issue with it. So that's why Marxist-Leninists do not use things like that. And so when we talk about things, we're talking about LGBTQ struggles, the women's struggle, the black struggle. Yes, we're focused specifically on black people, specifically on women, specifically on LGBTQ people. But not just that, our focus is workers. Above that, it's workers. But underneath that, the secondary factor in that is black workers, women workers, LGBTQ workers. So as long as your focus is workers, that's what matters. I do have a book. It's called Lenin on the Woman Question by Clara Zetkin. So I'm going to just read something quickly. This is from Comrade Lenin. I thought it was very interesting what he says here. This is on page four of the publication. He quotes, we must create a powerful international women's movement. He said this in 1920. I think it's interesting because RE, Women for Racial Economic Equality, which is affiliated with the Women's International Democratic Federation, is actually trying to do that, create a powerful international women's movement. And that started in 1945. But in 1920, when Comrade Lenin was around, he said, there is no good practice without Marxist theory. That's obvious. The greatest clarity of principle is necessary for us communists in this question. There must be a sharp distinction, separation between ourselves and all other parties. This is very important that he said that. Unfortunately, the Second World Congress, he means of the Comintern, did not deal with this question. It was brought forward, but no decision was ever arrived at. The matter is still in a commission state, which should draw up a resolution, a thesis, a direction. Up to the present time, however, the commission hasn't gotten very far. You would have to help us. And he's telling this to Clara Zetkin. And he says on page five by Colin Ty, he says, in my opinion, he says, without women, we should not have been victorious in 1917, or scarcely so. This is Lenin. That is my opinion. How brave they were. How brave they still are. Think of all the suffering all the deparations that the women bore, and they are carrying on because they want freedom, they want communism. Yes, our proletarian women are excellent class fighters. They deserve admiration, and they deserve love. Besides, you must remember that even the ladies of the constitutional democracy, he meant bourgeois women, in Petrograd, proved more courageous against us than did the Junkers. That is true. We have in the party reliable, capable, and entirely active women comrades. We can assign them to many important posts 
in the Soviet government and the executive committee of the party, in the people's commissariat, and in public service of every kind. Many of the women work day and they work night in the party. They work among the masses of the workers, the peasants, and even in the Red Army. That is of a very great value to the revolution. It is also important for women all over the world, not just in Russia. It shows the capacity of women, the great value of work that they have in society. The first proletarian dictatorship is a real pioneer in setting up social equality for women. It is clearing away more prejudices than could volumes of feminist literature do. Here he is, the first time in print that I've seen Lenin actually criticize the word feminist. Very interesting. But even with all that, we still have no international communist women's movement, and that we must have one. We must start at once to create one. Without that, the work of our international and of all our parties is not complete work. We can never be complete, but our work for the revolution must be complete. Tell me how communist work is going on around the world. This is what he asked Clara Zetkin. And I thought it's extremely interesting that he goes out of his way to mention the women's question and to actually mention in a negative way the word feminist. Here's what he says. The energy the willingness and the enthusiasm of women comrades, their courage, their wisdom in times of underground illegality or semi-legality above ground indicate good prospects for our development of our work. These women are valuable factors in extending the party and increasing its strength in winning the masses and in carrying on our party activities. But what about the training and what about the clarity of principle of these men and these women comrades? It is of fundamental importance for work among the masses. It is of great influence on what closely concerns the masses of workers, how they can be one to our position, how they can be made to be enthusiastic. I forgot for the moment who said this. One must be enthusiastic to accomplish great things. And I'll repeat it. One must be enthusiastic to accomplish great things. And this is for everybody on the phone call tonight, especially our young comrades, who are very enthusiastic about joining us, very enthusiastic about Marxism-Leninism. Lenin even mentioned this in 1920, he said, we and the workers of the whole world have really great things to accomplish. So what makes your comrades, the working women of Germany, enthusiastic? Question mark. What about their working class consciousness? Are their interests, their activities concentrated on immediate political demands? What is the mainspring of the ideals of women workers in Germany? But what I wanted to mention is the famous quote on our website.
by Bertolt Breck. It's a really important quote. I wish everybody listens to it. And it basically has to do with struggling inside the party, struggling for our cause. And it goes like this. I'm going to paraphrase it. There are those who struggle one day in their life, and they are good people. There are those who struggle for a month, and these people are better. And there are those who struggle for a year, and they're even better. But there are those who struggle their whole life, from the time they're young to the time they're old. These are the indispensable ones. These are the people that build Lenin's party, those that struggle their whole life. And I want to mention that, that it's not enough to come into a Bolshevik party and get to work right away. What's important is do it your whole life. I started at 13, and I'm 73 years old now. So I've been doing it for 60 years, and I hope other people understand the importance of that, and that's all. All I hear when I hear class reductionist is when we on the left say it's all class, it's only class, there's nothing but class, that the only oppression that there is is class oppression. And we have to go and say there's more than just class that oppresses us or that people use to oppress us and that we need to, as communists, recognize those and understand that there's other things out there and that there are other views out there than just class, and we need to be able to attack all those at the same time. And yes, the core is class, but there's other things out there. That's all. Very well put, exactly. Thank you. My takeaway, because I have learned a lot tonight too, is that when we're looking at bourgeois feminism, it appears as states that they consider men the enemy. But when you look at the proletariat couple or women, they know the enemy is capitalism. And you can see, as Angelo said tonight, he was surprised everyone was interested. And I think we're showing we're definitely more in the proletarian class because the men and women are looking at this as a real issue, and it's not between the sexes, so to speak. So I just wanted to pass that on. I thought it was a great class. Thanks. Thank you. It was a great class. Good night.